Hello and welcome to Lessons Learned, supported by Airhead, with me, Laura Winter. In this podcast, I'm going to speak to star sportsmen and women about the moments, choices, or indeed in hindsight the mistakes, that have formed the backdrop to their greatest victories and their biggest defeats. Because more often than not, a lesson learned the hard way is a lesson learned for a lifetime. From becoming a parent or winning Olympic gold, to getting divorced or losing a race, there are lessons to be learned in every human experience. On to episode three of Lessons Learned. Once again, you all had such a strong reaction to episode two with Hugo Monnier, who spoke so eloquently and articulately about racism, England duty, and becoming a father, amongst other lessons learned. And this podcast came alongside an incredibly powerful video BT Sport produced about racism in rugby. Vaucluse Dreamer tweeted, These relaxed chats are so honest and insightful, and that's twice this week his words have raised a tear in my eye. And Guna Quinns said, Hugely emotional as a dad of two young girls, I could totally relate to the latter half of the pod. Playing for Quinns and the Lions, less so. I think we're all Guna Quinns there. My guest's achievement in the sporting arena never failed to inspire and amaze me and leave me feeling utterly inferior about my own amateur sporting career. So my guest this episode was so generous with his emotions and his personal struggles, and I'm very grateful he shared so much of that with me. I was almost left speechless at times. I really hope you enjoy this chat as well. Just a quick note to say, due to the 2020 coronavirus pandemic, all of these interviews have been recorded via Zoom rather than face-to-face, but we've smoothed the audio out as much as possible. My brilliant guest to this episode is professional cyclist Nicholas Roach. Nico is a two-time Irish champion and an Olympian riding for World Tour Outfit Team Sunweb. He has won two stages of the Vuelta a España and twice finished in the top 10 in the general classification. He's always a strong contender for stage wins in Grand Tours as well as a super domestique. Nico, who has raced for BMC and Team Sky, is the son of infamous cyclist Stephen Roach, one of only two riders to win the Triple Crown, the Giro d'Italia the Tour de France and the World Championships. Nico lives in Monaco and is set to race his 10th Tour de France this year. Nico, hi, how are you? Hi, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? How's Monaco? Good, good, good. Weather has been great since, uh, I mean, the first few weeks after lockdown, we had, you know, when you do these jokes in lockdown, when it's nice and sunny, so today, <laughs> sure, when the lockdown's over, it's going to be raining, uh, and it did. <laughs> We, we had two weeks that it was just miserable, but uh, but the weather is now settled down and it's nice and warm and generally speaking sunny every day. So it's been, it's been a great month. It's been such a strange year, hasn't it? Because I mean, I do a bit of work for Team Sunweb and I saw you at the team launch back in last December now. And that seems like a different world to where we are right now. Yeah, totally, totally. And I mean, uh, you know, we, we heard about this crisis at the moment, but just it just felt so far away. Uh, and then suddenly, uh, I think just things went so quick from February onwards, because even yet at the start of the year, when the virus kind of hit uh, Abu Dhabi, it was still like, you know, yeah, Abu Dhabi, whatever, we can still go on. And then next thing I was like, no, boom, world shut down. So it went, it spread pretty quick. It went and, and the whole uh, system as we know it in just just completely uh, was put on pause. Yeah, the world as we know it stopped, didn't it? And I think 
this podcast has kind of been born from that period of lockdown where we all had so much time to reflect and to look back on our lives. Uh, you saw a lot of kind of like flashback posts on social media and stuff like that. And it kind of gives you a chance to, to look back and think about lives. And also this lockdown period for me certainly taught me a lot. It kind of made me see the world differently. It put things in a, in a different perspective. Uh, and that's where lessons learned has come from, as in looking back and seeing those key moments in your life that have changed you. How, how have you seen lockdown and what have you kind of learned from it? So, I mean, initially I thought I was a bit in panic and I only thought it was going to be two weeks. So that's how it was. Like my first reaction is like, oh, wow, uh, two weeks close up in my apartment on my own. How am I going to survive? And I did. And I actually found a lot of uh, good things to do. And a bit like you said, um, I think when you embrace it with a different mindset, uh, things were a lot easier. Um, I straight away got myself to routine. I kept on training really hard on the home trainers, things that I absolutely hated. But uh, thanks to modern technology, I mean, you know, with all, you know, Swift and all that, it's a lot easier to be able to, to be on the bike on a home trainer. Uh, and then, you know, most days I was with uh, Michael and my brother and, and a couple of mates on, on you know, we organize our groups and that would kill half the day. And then the afternoon was a little bit quicker. And thanks to technology between, you know, doing a lot of lives on Instagram and spending a bit more time with uh, with interviews and, and just also answering DMs from, from fans, just being able to give them that bit more time. Uh, I actually never felt alone at all, although I was physically alone for, for eight weeks. So um, in the end, like a bit like you said, it's... Um, you, you, you came up with the idea of your podcast which is something that you wanted to do in a long time I didn't do a podcast but uh, I just started you know reflecting on things that I've done and things that I still want to do and uh, just trying to clear up a little bit your mind yeah definitely and I think that's part of what this podcast is someone actually likened it to therapy so hopefully this is going to be like a therapy <laughs> session for you for free as well, well um, <laughs> <laughs> let's go back to um, the beginning because your your points your moments your choices are in chronological order, order very handy for me so yeah your first one your first moment in life that you think has shaped who you are today I mean shaped who I am today is, is a big word but definitely had an influence it was 2008 the, the Walter where I, I tried to initially I went there to kind of do everything so I was on the attack going for sprints and everything and then on on, on the first mountain day I said I'm just going to hang in and see how far I go and it was like 15, 16 so it wasn't too bad and the next day I said alright I'll hang in there as well and I was sitting around 15, 16 but there was always one or two guys getting dropped so in the end of the day I was just getting closer to that top 10 I, I didn't quite make it to top 10 uh, I managed to finish 13th but there I realised how much I enjoyed the thrills and the focus that, that you needed to ride a GC and I, I, I was like all right, this is what I want to do. I want to be a Grand Tour rider. So that was kind of the moment where I said, all right, next year, I'm just going to try and focus and be ready for hopefully uh, my first Tour de France. Uh, and I'm just going to try and focus a little bit on, on my GC. I think also with your father, we'll bring in Stephen now, he, you know, a Grand Tour winner. He won two Grand Tours in one year with the, the Giro d'Italia and of course the Tour de France as well. There was pressure on your shoulders, wasn't there, coming into cycling to emulate that and to live up to that and to walk in giant footsteps he left. Yeah, but yet again, look, uh, it would have been easier for me to stay into that kind of classic rider or mold that I was starting to be. I was just like, you know, a, a strong rider that, and I was pretty good in, in the classics. I was a bigger build. And then I just kind of, it was easier for me to go somewhere completely different rather than go more or less where he went. So so in that perspective, I, I wasn't afraid to challenge him. I didn't want to beat him or be better. I just 
did what I wanted to do basically without really paying attention. And I said, oh, people criticize me, they criticize me once, twice, three times, four times, and I get bored of it. They criticize somebody else. Yeah, there's always someone else, isn't there, in the world okay. of sport to, yeah. to throw something at. Did you feel did you feel a pressure then going into that being like I'm gonna be a GC rider, or was it just something that you wanted oh, uh, with everything? That's something I wanted. So the pressure came when I turned professional, obviously. Uh, uh, my dad was very good. Uh, in his first years uh, I turned pro very young at the time I was 20 okay now it seems very normal but uh, in 2003-2004 it wasn't normal to turn pro at 20 it was more like 24-25 after you're under 23 years uh, there's nothing like signing juniors five years uh, before they're you know anyway that's that's modern cycling uh, and I the first year was was quite hard you know you went to races and my goal was to finish races now newer pros are winning races so it's uh, things changed and at the beginning I was quite good when I was stagiaire. I was 10th in one of the races at the end of the year. So straight away, the team thought I was going to be like the next best thing. But it took me a couple of years to, to develop, at least two. I managed to win a, a race my second year, but uh, then I was just kind of slowly uh, maturing. But it wasn't straight away getting big results. And But obviously, my, my team at the moment, my a lot of the staff were had worked with my dad back in the years with Fagor and all that. There was still like, you know, 20 years in between uh, when he turned pro and when I turned pro. So there was still quite a lot of staff that were had worked with both generations. And for them, uh, I was never going to be as good and they made it very clear but I didn't want to be as good or I wanted to be as good but I knew it was going to be very difficult and I think the, the good thing was because he was so good back in his days it was actually easier because if he was 8th and 10th in every race then I would have been in direct competition I mean, all right, I was ninth here, you were 10th, and I was 7th here, and I was 8th, and whatever we're there, it's like, okay, you won the tour, the Giro, whatever so it's like, you know just, just do your thing, I'll do mine We'll move on to your second point then. It's yeah. also in the Vuelta, isn't it? What is it you love about the Vuelta? The timing. You know, I think uh, I think I need a lot of heat. I like the, the shorter climbs compared to the turn de Giro. And I, t- I believe strongly in, in the body clock. And, and for me, my body clock is, is August, September. And, and every year I, I just peak in, in that month. And since I was a kid, I always... Um, even when I was junior and, and underage, I always had my peak around that that, uh, that period and I've never been able to change. And I've worked through the winter because, you know, I was always saying, you know, if I had the same shape in the Vuelta in Paris, I would have been a superstar in cycling. Unfortunately not. Uh, and teams, you know, they were telling me, but how can you be so good in August and not in April? Because it's easy. One, because I finished the year in November because I, I always push my form till the last race of the year. So when I take my holidays, the guys are already preparing the year. And obviously, you know, I, I struggled with colds. Uh, and uh, in the winter I start already a little bit later so that plus that plus that every year means that uh, I don't know out of all my years I only had one year where I was pretty okay in, in the start of the year it was 2010 but but all the other years I was just uh, just, just not being able to get that uh, that shape but every year I managed to get that that good shape between you know July and, and October to give a couple of months in there so obviously when when I find a race that's in my top shape, I aim for it every year because it could have been easier for me just to go maybe into, you know, Poland, Tour Britain and try and, and win those races where and make the most. That's what my cousin, for example, Dan did. He would do Tour and then straight into Poland or not do the Tour and do Poland because he wanted to go there and win races. And But no, I was obsessed with getting a top five or whatever GC in the world because I knew I could do it and I did it in 2013. But I, I just felt that if there was one race I was aiming for, that top five podium was there and that, that was where I needed to go. Yeah, I mean, it's clearly working for you. You had two years then focusing on GC. What happened in 2010 at the Vuelta? 
So yeah, so 2010 was uh, was good for me in in the Volta. I was able to to really hang in there. I was actually really really close to the podium. I got I overpaced in in the TT three days to go, and I completely exploded in the last 5k and and, and dropped a bit of time. Uh, but then the last two mental stages, mate, was able to to come back in GC. I was I was very disappointed. I think it was less than a minute off the podium, uh, and my I was clearly from the team time trial, which AG Tour weren't specialists and still not our specialists. <laughs> and uh, and in the in my own private uh, individual TT, so uh, you know I was in a position where I think I was just so close to being on the podium, and I knew my climbing capabilities were there. I was just um, you know just a little bit nervous, and um, I had Schleck in front of me, and I, I just kind of really I was ahead of him on on top of the it was like kind of twenty five k one way U turn and twenty five k the other way, but just on two two parallel roads. And um, I kind of clearly overpaced because I knew if I had Schleck, I could I could be on the podium. But um, obviously, uh, at that moment, AG Tour, we had no power meter or nothing. So it was just purely on feeling where most of the other bigger teams already had power meters. Uh, and I completely exploded, like I said, a couple of K to go and lost my podium there. But I was just that bit close to get my ultimate goal of uh, at that time, top five. And that was like my big results thing. All right, now I can... I can put myself as a clearly uh, a GC rider. Yeah, life. absolutely. Uh, yeah, definitely. Do you know what I find extraordinary? I, do, I talk to a lot of cyclists and I, I find it with whoever I talk to is how well you guys remember the details, even if it's a race that happened over a decade ago, how well you remember the details of what's happening. You're talking through a mountain stage in 2008 and it's crystal clear in your mind still. Yeah, I mean, your, your memory is very selective. Uh, you usually remember the, the key elements of good and bad and kind of the middle bit kind of goes away. But uh, and I think also, I mean, everyone's different, but I have a very visual uh, memory. So like even when I'm, I'm, I'm like a road book when we go on a race, you know, if I've gone through on the road, I just comes up in my mind. Oh, I remember a stage and the guys have a good laugh because they, they make fun of me, actually, because so, I remember we came here in the Tour de France 2009 and we went left and we did this climb and Schleck won or whatever. They're like, <laughs> really? <laughs> Yeah, it's, ama- it's an amazing skill to have, uh, especially is. for a rider who's obviously going to ride those roads, you know, year in, year out, and to know, like, every twist and turn, it's it's a great thing to have. Yeah, it is. I mean, one of, it, I think it's been always on my on my side, that capability of uh, just remembering places, areas, and, and also it's key in a briefing when I can just bring a little bit more information to to the to the guys when we're, we're talking about obviously today with all the technology uh you know they have all like these street views and all that so you can actually see it from your laptop but it's different again when you're racing it it's funny you mentioned team briefings um i saw a recent instagram post from your team team somewhere and it had something like one of the junior riders within the team one of the development guys and then you alongside and it was kind of like older more experienced shoulders younger head what's it like for you now coming you're talking about 2008 2010 but actually at the moment you're riding in a team where you are the experienced veteran can i say of of the squad i guess so uh i mean that that the, the photo is uh is elan actually it's quite funny because i had posted that photo when we did the jersey launch a couple of weeks ago but i had clearly put you know the young and the younger uh <laughs> and obviously elan uh elan who is professional uh uh already he, he had a good laugh at it and he says yeah definitely you know but then the team were not as um as optimistic as I was at my age <laughs> and for them I'm clearly uh, the older rider but uh, but yes I think there's this 15 years difference between the two 16 years difference between the two so there's quite a lot but uh, but look same same passion same dreams uh, his dreams are, are exactly the same as mine I'm still I'm, I'm still going out to to these races with 
the will to, to win, to achieve things, uh, just in the same way that he is. And, and for sure, and when I go out training on my bike, I still have the same uh, the same love for the for the job too. So we still have a lot in common, apart that uh, I'm more than a decade older than him. <laughs> Not to make you feel old, you're really not in the grand scheme of life. Yeah, you're, you're totally right. So, I mean, when you're when you're a cyclist, you you know, especially in this team, the average age is 24, and the second oldest is Chad, who's 31. So he's already five years younger than me. So it's kind of you know, it, it's it makes you feel old. But I remember when I went to my first Tour de France, the average age of the team was 32. So it wasn't that old, and and I was the one bringing the age down because I was 25. So, and all the others like 37, 36. So I think in this team, I definitely feel a little bit older, but not really because with the guys, we have, um, like, we really have a good fun and, uh, and I'm fully integrated with them. And we have, like I said, I'm not, you know, the old guys just on the side. Like I really play the game with them and I jump in their conversation at dinner table. And for me, it's great because basically when in, in, in my mind at the dinner table and one with them, I'm like one of theirs, you know, yeah. uh, obviously I'm not 22 anymore, but, uh, just for that moment, I'm, I'm capable of disconnecting and, and having fun with them without a- any segregation or whatever, just due to my age. You're not the grandpa of the team then. No, I'm, I'm, sure, <laughs> I'm sure they're learning huge amounts from you as well as a rider with this kind of experience that we're talking about your your next moment or choice uh, within your life the 2013 Vuelta this was the big year wasn't it that was a big year so 2010 was my <laughs> my first good try at it uh, <laughs> and then 2011 was I had a big big crash in the Dauphiné and the team kind of made me want to go to the tour but looking back I should not have gone to the tour I was two weeks off the bike I did one week on the bike and I went directly to the tour but it was just just premature and um and then I went to to the Vuelta and and the same. I just wasn't quite uh, quite there yet. The crash was just too too hard, and and I was just just not there. Uh, it worked a li- couple of weeks later when I, then I won a, eventually won a stage in in China, and, and shape was there again. But I went to the Vuelta. I think it was fifteenth or sixteenth, but it was just just didn't have uh, the the legs. It was just something the edge missing. And then two thousand twelve, I was sitting in eighth or ninth position, actually in both races in the Tour and in the Vuelta. And um, and both times I, I I hunger flat three or four days to the finish in both races, uh, and I ended up finishing finishing twelfth in the Tour and twelfth in the Vuelta. So it was just like there and about, but it just didn't happen. And once again, my mistake. I was just obsessed with weight and just uh, underfueled, but not during the race, underfueled before the race because in in the Tour stage, for example, I was already hunger flat in the feed zone, so in the neutral zone. Sorry, at the start. So it was, um, and I did the same mistake in the Vuelta. So it's not like you learn from it. And in 2013, I was like, all right, I'm going to the Tour de France for the first time in four years, not as a GC rider, but in support of Contador. Uh, and then after that, I had a, a great preparation. I went up in altitude with uh, Roman Kruziger and Benatti in, in Livigno. We had a great camp. And, you know, after the tour, I was already fifth in, in San Sebastian and I knew the shape was, was there. And then up there with uh, Kruziger every day, was like telling me, Nico, stay focused because this year is your year. You're, you're flying. You know, you, you can do something. Uh, and I was. And then uh, just to be able to, that Welta, you know, I won a stage, wore the jersey, finished fifth in GC. And yet again, uh, I still made a mistake and, and, and I threw a podium away in the snow snow stage of Andorra. I was absolutely flying. And then on the last climb, on the descent, I took my knee warmers off and my, my legs froze. My fault, because I, I could have perfectly done that climb in 
came three degrees with my knee warmers on. It was not a problem. But I was just so obsessed of, you know, when you're, when you're a kid, especially back in Ireland, it was like, you, you need to take your arm warmers off and your knee warmers off for the sprint because you're not, uh, you know, you, you need to, to, to let the, the, the skin breathe for the sprint. And I always had that in the back of my mind, although I was already uh, almost 10 years professional. I was like, I was so, so, you know, Valverde was dropped. I was in second in GC and I just knew that that was a moment where I could nail it and just really, really uh, be there because I was just fitting everything right. I said, all right, I'm just really, really go. Take my knee warmers off and my legs completely froze. I got to the bottom and, and that was it. It was game over. I lost six minutes and 6K. Valverde came back. He was two minutes down and put another four minutes into me uh, and I, I dropped down to seventh and then the next day I went on the attack and eventually moved back up to fifth but I got my, I got my top five in, in GC then. Uh, again, the detail you're going into about this one mistake that you made, yeah, it's it's, it's amazing to me. Do, how long do you think about those mistakes? Does that keep you up at night? You know, when you're sort of sitting there uh, and you're thinking, it, oh God, if only I hadn't taken my knee warmers off. It's such a small thing, isn't it? But it, the impact of it is huge. Yeah, totally, totally. And, and physically, I, I, I don't know, I, I was only once again, just a couple of minutes, not even, I think it was like a minute, a minute 20 off. Uh, the podium, which was Valverde and Rodriguez, who were just fourth and fifth in front of me, but but once again, just just never know. It's just that little bit missing and one mistake, and at that moment, you can't make a mistake when you're, especially when you're riding against these guys. It's always the what ifs, isn't it, that kind of haunt yeah. you. And I mean, you know, and I've looked at the stage so many times, and you can clearly see on the second last climb, I'm absolutely flying there with a late Beimer, with a uh, late Beimer, with a Horner, with Tactus, and I was there, no problem with Nibali and 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 Rodriguez and then he kind of slows down we take a slow descent and I'm kind of slowly taking my knee warmers off and we get to the bottom and that was it game over so it was it was actually quite uh, easy to to analyze and how, how often do you actually watch back your races not just I guess to sit there and sort of in in glory and think how what a wonderful cyclist you are but to actually <laughs> learn from and and to look back on those moments uh and think how can I do better next time well um this on this Vuelta 2013, there's a really good video of mine called Nico's Vuelta, something like that. Uh, and it's great that this has a piece of my interview with Matt Rendell. And, and I'm not sure who did it because it's not signed. There's like a three, four minute video. It's called Nico's Vuelta. And, and it's amazing. It shows my attacks, shows me taking the jersey. And it shows me also taking a bit of a dig on the, on the snowy day of Andorra. So I've used quite this video a lot of times when I do uh, Q&As or conferences. So unfortunately, at this particular moment, I've seen it happen too many times when I crack on that, uh, on that stage. Or other moments, I didn't spend so much time uh, looking back at them. This one is just, it's just clear. And like I said, I've seen this video now so many times because like my little intro video that I use when I, when I do a speech. Like a horror film that you choose to yeah. watch about yourself. Yeah. Painful. So before we delve further into Nico's personal life in his next moment, I wanted to take this chance to talk about my wonderful sponsor. Now, I believe strongly in active travel and protecting our environment, and I'm so excited to have support from a brilliant new company, Airhead. Airhead was started in London in 2019 by three friends. The founders are all keen cyclists, much like myself, and indeed Nico. And while commuting in the city, they soon realised the existing mask market proved hot, uncomfortable, embarrassing to wear, and in some cases, ineffective. 
They quit their corporate jobs and joined forces with a team of expert designers at Brunel University to make radical improvements to pollution masks. With masks now commonplace, why not wear one that will also protect against air pollution? It is estimated there are 64,000 deaths in the UK due to air pollution, and exposure to dirty air is also proven to negatively impact sports performance. So sign up, join the Airhead community for the latest news and an exclusive discount for Lessons Learned listeners. Head to www.airhead.cc forward slash Lessons Learned. We're going to move on to more of a personal moment for you now. Um, and I really want this podcast to be as much talking about who you are as a sportsman and what you do on the bike as much as what happens to you off the bike and the backdrop with which we, we view what you do and how you race. So we're talking about your divorce, aren't we, in 2018? Yeah. So, I mean, let's say the month of April 2018, because everything happened. My divorce was, well, the first kind of steps of the divorce went through uh, the first week of the Giro, but also my brother was diagnosed on the Thursday, so the day before the start of the Giro in uh, in Jerusalem. So in the same week, I was told that my brother had a 15% chance of survival because it was the second time he was diagnosed with leukemia in 10 years. And I was asked that I, I was told that I lost my house and my ex-wife was asking for crazy, stupid amount of money and there was very little chance that I was going to get anything out of the house. So that went through my head and I just could not sleep. But uh, both, 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 both news, let's say, in the same, the same 48, 72 hours at the start of the Giro was just, uh, just too much. Uh, I spent 10 days there and then suddenly in one of the stages in the Dolomites, I just, uh, just had a nervous breakdown. I uh, started crying on the bike and that was it. I had to come off. I just uh, just couldn't do it. So uh, the team were didn't understand that. They they were really really pissed off. They basically told me I was useless for the team and I should disappear and prepare for Poland. So that was the kind of reaction of the team, which I find still today not acceptable. And I'm always saying, "Said lucky, I, my head is strong and I was able to bounce back." A young kid would have been jumped out the balcony. But um, and bearing in mind that it was my first abandon after 19 Grand Tours, so it's not like something is not my habit to abandon. And out of those 19s, as you said, you studied pro cycling stats. I think I've, out of the 19, I think I have seven or eight in top 15. So I've always been very good in Grand Tours or consistent, not there to win them, but I've always been there and about. And, and once in my life, I needed not to chop my head off and the management in BMC did. And just everything together, the fact that the team, they reacted, they just said, oh, disappear, see you in August and cut your social media. And then... Um, the other news is then it was just uh, it was just kind of kind of difficult and um, obviously I come back in Poland and I get a uh, I get food poisoned from a bad egg on day one and abandoned Poland so it was a uh, it was drama. Lucky enough, I went to Norway and um, a couple of days later and I was really in good shape and the team decided to to put me in the vault and give me a go anyway and then that was kind of went went okay-ish but uh but those those kind of four or five months were were very difficult and everyone everything went through my mind it was like how am i gonna manage it how am i gonna um, as a cyclist but also as a person and obviously you know the frustration of uh, working all your life and uh, and your house completely disappeared for a bit of paperwork my, my wedding lasted a year so it was a very expensive uh, year uh, and I was just, you know, just all this frustration and obviously, uh, well, there was not much to do than, than, than just stay on the bike and fight on, on the bike and it took me a couple of months and then eventually, uh, with time, uh, things kind of got better. But it was, for me, it was a big year because cycling has a very short term memory 
and people I didn't talk about in my divorce that barely talked about the cancer and people just thought that that was it I was done and I was like no I'm not done I'm 34 or 33 so I'm not done I feel old well you think I'm old because I've done already 11 or 12 well 13 or 14 years pro but but um but I'm not old I'm only 33 I'm not old but because I've been around for so long that the idea of a lot of the the, the, the teams was that uh, that was it I was finished but not from mentally but just because physically I didn't I wasn't at what they were expected but uh, no one really uh, looked into my 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 personal issue or when I told them like I said I didn't get the help that uh, that I should have got at the time not from the team anyway and I think that's that's really a good example of mental health uh, trauma d- depression can we use the word depression for what, yeah, what you, you heard depression I had to see a psychologist for two months so, yeah yeah I think it's a very good example of, of how that can actually affect the body physically. And it's something that I don't think we're fully discussing yet is, is the effects physically on the body that, the mental, that your mental health actually has. And when you said every thought went through your head, just how low, how low did you go? How low were you getting? Like, you know, uh, at some point I was like, should I, should I just retire or like, can I? And then I was like, nah, I was going to come back, keep on fighting. Because the thing is, when I was training, I was flying. And once I was here at home in my element with my friends, I was flying. Because when I went to a race, there was a moment where my body just wouldn't let me go deeper. And there was a moment where I couldn't breathe really well when I was flat out. So it just, just would all be, you know, they always say your, your, your stomach and your, like this area is where your emotional center is. And I just felt always really, really closed. Uh, and doing anxiety attacks and all that so it's just uh, once I get that sorted you know I mean it, it's everything it's uh, when you're a fighter on the bike or in life it's just a question of fighting it and there was no way I was going to abandon it was just a tough moment and harder than I expected and I think that was also difficult I thought that was I going to be like you know I get, I get over it in no time and I think because it was taking me longer I was also thinking I was like oh crap this is actually taking me longer than what it should I should have already been you know completely emotionally detached from it uh, and I wasn't capable of that. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm stronger than this. I can I can go and ride the Giro and not think about losing my house and my brother dying from cancer. And uh, and no, I couldn't. Um, because in, in previous years, you know, life is never uh, a straight road. And I've had issues in my personal life before, if it's with teams, if it's contracts or whatever. And once I was on the bike with a race number, I didn't care what was happening in the world. I was just a bike rider and I was completely capable of not thinking of any problems that went through my life but this time I just couldn't and I think also that was a bit hard to to accept saying like this is just just that bit bigger than because my you know I went through my brother's cancer in 2007 the first time and it was difficult uh obviously it was a big shock when you're when when it happened but cycling was like my therapy so it was the opposite where there I was like yeah training is my therapy but racing was just I just just couldn't perform and going through that, has it made you think differently about mental health and about your own mental health, your own fragility, uh, your own emotions, and the fact that we hear it so often now, but it's true, it's okay not to be okay, it's okay to admit that and to discuss it freely like we're doing now? Yeah, true. I mean, like I said, for, for two years, I hated. Uh, I never spoke about my divorce. I barely spoke about my, my brother's cancer because for me, it was, I didn't want to find an excuse. I don't want to be, oh, poor Nico. I was like, no, I'm stronger than this. I'm going to, I'm going to do it on my own. Obviously, my friends and close family and my teammates because I had to evacuate. And sometimes, you know, after the stage, you know, I had to spend hours with the, on the phone with, with the lawyer before, <laughs> before dinner or after dinner. I was sometimes late and I had to explain. I said, sorry, I had to call the lawyer or whatever. And so, so my teammates and, and my team knew about it, but it's not like I was, you know, in the media, the first time I spoke about it was, uh, last year in the tour. And it was just a quick, quick note. And I didn't say, it. I just said I had a rough 
personal 2018. And the first time that I kind of opened up to it was only this year uh, during the confinement with uh, Paul Kimmage in the Irish Independent. So that's like almost two and a half years now. Do you feel lighter having having shared it, having talked about it? I think so, because everybody in Ireland thinks that I'm the happy Nicholas Roche living in Monaco and fancy cars and expensive watches, which life is not like that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, well, thank you for sharing that on here. I know things like that are difficult to talk about, but it's exactly what I want this podcast to be about the lessons we learn from going through absolutely horrendous things that happen in our lives where we have to put on a brave face to the world, but behind closed doors, things are falling apart. Yeah, I think, you know, especially in sport, you, you only see success and failure. We don't see the road to the success and you don't see the cause of the failure. It's just really two ideas. And, and especially today in a, in a day where, where image is speaked on everything. If you want to be really happy, it's very easy. On Instagram, you just show yourself with a big smile every day and people think you're happy days and, you know, this guy is living the dream. Uh, and I see it because, you know, if I, if I don't put a post that I'm on the bike in the morning and in the afternoon I put a post and I'm having an ice cream, people are thinking, you know, he's on a rest day. But no. I just don't need to post that I did five hours before. And if I just wanted to post that I'm having an ice cream, like, you know, people may very jump to conclusions. Uh, I'm set, that, that's, that's a typical example, you know, but, but, but that's how, you know, you really want, you show what you want to show and, and people can, can also interpret things easier well, one way or, or the other. Yeah. And you can't control that either. I think we're all no. very, very guilty of putting out things on social media uh, that very much hide the truth. I mean, Instagram is a complete highlights reel, isn't it? It's just the happy, shiny stuff and the rest we kind of keep away. Yeah, I mean, I mean, everybody likes a successful story, isn't it? Like, even if you look at Netflix today or, or Amazon Prime, most of the, the, the programs are only about success stories. The Jordan Bull story, the Formula One programs, the Movistar, whatever. It's, yeah, it's a backstage, but it's backstage based on success. And everyone wants to see the success, not not the failure and the hard moments. And, and Instagram is, is a machine to show success. The pages with hot chicks in bikini work better than overweight. But it's true. And, and, it, and it's sad. And it's the same. All these successful uh, billionaires showing their life in private jets and all that have millions of followers. And they're basically nobody, just successful businessmen. But showing success success is kind of a, attracts people to, to follow you. Yeah, definitely. Okay, 2018 then. Horrible, yeah. horrible year for you. Uh, how's your brother? as well he had his uh his transplant a year ago uh now a year and a half ago last november with 2018 at the end of 18 and um he's good he's had a rough last year he had a lot of complications after the transplant a lot of the things didn't quite work out but uh but now at, for him the confinement was great because everybody was at his own pace because he hasn't been he's been in confinement for the last two years basically yeah. so teachers uh he's been you know doing school on, online and all that so uh for him it was great because like everyone was was as his pace and um he was he was i mean i went out on the bike with him but not with him uh, beside him. Uh, I actually <laughs> drove in the car beside him. He, he went for a family picnic and uh, he took the bike up in the mountains and he took the bike because it was a quiet road. Um, he has a high level of uh, osteoporosis, so he's not really meant to be on the bike or he can be really in a kind of safe environment. So what they usually do is my mom, she, she drives up the mountains and he goes for an hour in the mountains and then put the, because he loves the bike. So it's just a, uh, just a way to get out and you know being on the ergo for so long is no fun oh i'm glad to hear that he's doing well yeah, yeah. um 
2019 then let's talk about your final moment um that you learned something from or, or that kind of was a one of those moments that stands out in your mind well obviously the the, um, the leaders jersey in the water because it was my way of showing that 2018 was just one bad year and because of my problems not because i was getting old or not good on the bike anymore so um already having you know being back in top 10 in GC in Tour de Suisse was also, also, you know, the start of that. Had a pretty good tour and then just been able to to give it a go in the Vuelta. And unfortunately, I didn't last long with stage seven, crashed and broke my kneecap. But uh, but until then, I was in, I showed that I was back at the top level. And, uh, you know, even after the first mental stage, I was still fifth in GC and showing that I was back to me in, uh, in my favorite race. Was that your worst crash or perhaps most ill-timed crash you've had? Let's say no. I think I think the one in the Dauphiné in 2011 yeah. was, was the worst. Uh, I had nothing broken. It was just skin, but it was just a lot of skin, like a lot, a lot of skin. I looked like a ripped cat. It was just horrible. It, it was, um, yeah. I I still have the photograph. I have one of the the the, the, the soigneurs who took. You know, I was just lying naked on <laughs> on my bed, and it was just blood all over the place. Oh. And uh, because the doctor said, uh, you know, there's two ways of doing it, or you clean yourself in the in the hotel. And uh, we go to the hospital, or you have a high probability that you would get some nurse who's just going to rip everything, every chipping out of you, and it's just going to, you know, be worse. So I said, all right, let's go to the hotel. And um, I just, I just sat in a in a bucket in my underwear with the shower, and the doctor was holding the shower, and I was using the, you know, we have this special brush to take to take all the the chippings out, and I just had so much stones and tar in me, and I was just, oh, I mean, it, it was. That was a very, very bad crash. I crashed at 80k an hour. My hand slipped off the, off the handlebars, and um, uh, like I was, you know, from my my face to my toes, basically cut. Um, where in terms of uh, damage, uh, that was actually the first time that I broke something in in or fractured something in my career. So if you think about it, you know, after 15 years of, as a bike rider, uh, having your first fracture isn't so bad. But it was just, uh, you know, I mean, there's never a good moment to crash. But it's when you're not in shape, it, you you take it easier. <laughs> where where there, I was like, you know, I was back on track, back showing that I was back in the game, and the next thing, I'm watching the guys from TV again. It's been so frustrating. I'm literally sitting here wincing at the thought of you scouring out <laughs> road from your cuts. And for those who perhaps yeah. don't follow cycling and aren't used to uh, hearing these kind of stories, that's very much part and parcel of the sport, isn't it? Just crashing at 80k an hour and skidding along the road, leaving your skin there and then getting back on the bike as soon as you can. Yeah, exactly. And like I said, I always remember like, you know, there was a it was a crappy hotel and he just took a bucket and we turned the bucket around and I was sitting and he was holding the shower with, a, with you know, not too cold, not too hot. Oh. And just to be able to and put the betadine in. And, and, and he was right because unfortunately over the years I've been in hospital a few times. Like last year only I was four times in hospital with crashes. So it, it's kind of... Um, it's kind of not a habit, but <laughs> but it's something that happens, and it's true. When you go to the hospital, they're they're, they're a bit brutes, those those nurses, and they're there to work. And there's no, you know, if something is is sore, they won't say, "Oh, just wait for one second. You just go, it's gone." <laughs> and yeah, it's more effective. But uh, as uh, I was remembering, he says, "Nico, it's easy. You do it yourself, and I'll help you." Or the nurse will do it, but just remember, it's going to be a lot harder if the nurse does it. And it was just like I said, I was just completely skinned off, so there was a lot of work to do. And then eventually went to the hospital and that was it. And it was a, 
I stayed here overnight. That's savage. We're going to literally put people off bike riding for life if we carry on. Um, but that moment for you then in the leader's jersey at the 2019 Vuelta Espana, standing on the podium, was that for you a, like a statement? Was it a sort of moment where you thought, that's put 2018 behind me and I'm where I should be? Yeah, totally. It was like, uh, guys, you, you had me knocked down, but I'm not. I'm here. Yeah, it was brilliant to see. I enjoyed watching it. And then obviously there was that awful crash on stage seven, break your kneecap. Uh, in the moment, how disappointed were you and how quickly did that disappointment disappear or reduce? Well, I, I, I tried to get back on the bike. That's why a lot, there was a lot of confusion. People thought that I crashed on my own later because uh, so there was Ran and some of the other guys were still on the ground and Ran was, was in a much worse state than I was. And, uh, but, but my reflex, once everyone went, I just got on the bike and I was still on a descent. So obviously I freewheeled for a little bit and I was just there and was pissing down blood and, and cause I, I also cut myself with, uh, with a disc. Um, and then next thing when I did my first pedal stroke, it was like, Oh, I just like an electric shock in my knee. And I said, no, this is this, I don't know this pain, but it's not good. And I tried again and I was like, oh, no, I almost disbalanced and, and fell on, on the side because my knee kind of almost kind of locked up just to buy protection. And that was it. I freewheeled to the bottom of the descent, found a little wall to, to sit on. And the sports director was, there was carnage still. So they came by me uh, and they said, what's happening? And I says, uh, I just, I just can't. And he says, uh, are you sure? I says, yeah, yeah, I just, I just can't. And um, the ambulance came up and I went to the ambulance and obviously just with the nerves, well, uh, I had a bit of a, a tear and frustration and I was like, why now why now why now and then that was it once i got to the hotel and i was just like all right that's it it's just um better in a way you say okay it happened in the wrong time but it's like okay but in the meantime i also one got the jersey raised the way i wanted to and i got it the way i wanted to not by a breakaway with 25 minutes i went there with uh, uh roglish uh Uran, aru and and quintana and, and Nieve, the big guys so the way i wanted it and and two, after the first big test, which was the first mountain stage, I was still up there with the guys. So I was like, all right, now I've shown that I'm still at the top level. It wasn't just have the jersey and crash. If I had crashed the day two, it would have been different, but already been able to do the jersey plus. Well, the way I got the jersey, holding it, and then keeping a good GC position after the first mountain stage, that together was like, all right, but it is what it is. It's not gonna, I'm not going to fix my knee overnight. I've abandoned now. Uh, but at least I've shown that I was capable of being at the, the top level. And hopefully more of the same when the racing, as and when the racing kicks off this year as well. How much are you looking forward to getting back out there? Yeah, I'm looking forward to it because if you think about it, uh, apart from those three days that I did in February with uh, the Tour of uh, Alps and, and, and Provence, uh, it's almost a year since I haven't raced. It's crazy, isn't it? How quickly time is flying by. Uh, Nico, thank you so much for your honesty. Whenever we chat, we always have these kind of conversations, but it's just amazing to actually get this down on, on tape, to record it and, and to hear you speak so eloquently about your career and, of course, your personal life as well. So a huge thank you to you uh, for being on the podcast. Well, there we go. Wasn't Nico fantastic? And you can't help but admire that level of honesty and his candid nature and how much he shared with us all. And once again, it proved that the Nico Roach we see on a bike racing or driving a fast car in Monaco is a small fraction of who he actually is as a person and indicates we never truly know what is going on behind closed doors. As this podcast is published too, Nico is about to embark on his 10th Tour de France with Team Sunweb. So best of luck to him.
Well, that's it for episode three. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget, hit subscribe, leave a review and get in touch on social media as well at Laura C. Winter on Twitter and Instagram. Plus, if you think your friends and family might enjoy this, please share amongst them as well. I'll be back next episode with a brilliant, inspiring interview with the fabulous Becky Adlington, four-time Olympic swimming medalist. Until then, bye for now.